Hi, and welcome to the ACO Show. I'm Brian Chaklinski, joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Josh Israel. Hey, Josh. Hey, Brian. Here we are again. Again, yes. So today we have a very special episode. We're joined by the president and CEO of RIP Medical Debt, Allison Sesso. RIP Medical Debt is a nonprofit established for the sole purpose of reducing medical debt for low-income individuals and aggregating debt from people across the country. We're bringing them on today because for a lot of reasons, first of all, their work is amazingly important. And second of all, we actually, Alliday partnered with RIP Medical Debt a couple months ago to relieve the debt of more than 100,000 patients in Mississippi and Louisiana. Josh, what do you think about the conversation? How'd it go? I thought it was great. You know, you said it's a very special episode. I, I know you think every episode is a very special episode, but I, I, I did enjoy <laughs> talking with her. It's both grim and fascinating. You know, we are in the business at Allidate of trying to improve health, better primary care. And when I started, I think I would have thought that just meant getting more mammograms, more colonoscopy screening, making sure people get their flu shots. But there are all these dark hidden corners of reasons why people aren't getting these things attended to. You know, we may learn that they don't have transportation. You know, it's not a healthcare problem per se, but it keeps them from going to the doctor. And Many examples like that, you know, or we're trying to treat diabetes, but they live in a food desert. And now here's this one that we learned that some people are not going to the doctor because they owe money, even though they thought they had good health insurance, but but they turned out to be underinsured. So really heartening to hear the work that they're trying to do. Yeah, it's always, you know, in the debate about how do we lower health care costs? There's always the debate of do you provide less care? Do you provide more barriers to care? Do you try to get people to be more economical about their use of the healthcare system? But the philosophy behind value-based care is very much the opposite. It's that more care, more primary care, more preventive care actually will reduce care costs over the long run. And the question we're always facing is like, well, what's in the way of getting more care? Is it more accessibility to a primary care doctor? Is it more awareness of, you know, when a uh, a uh, patient goes to the hospital and needs some follow-up appointments. And this is a huge problem that a huge obstacle in the way of patients getting care from their physician if they're just carrying this burden of medical debt that they can't pay. And so, yeah, it's it's a very uh, a very good cause. And, and as you point out in the episode, it's very dystopian sometimes to look at these dark corners of the American healthcare system. But I guess that's how things get fixed. All right. Well, let's get to Allison. We're joined today by Allison Sesso, President and CEO of RIP Medical Debt. Allison, thank you so much for joining us today on the ACO Show. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Well, yeah, let's just kick it off. Obviously, we have, Allidade has a detailed history with RIP Medical Debt and some work that we've done together. But this is the first time we've had you on the show. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and what brought you to RIP Medical Debt? Sure, happy to. So I've been President and CEO now for three years. My background is I previously I was working as a executive director of an association of nonprofit social services providers in New York City, and I represented them to government and helped them get better contracts and and really understood a lot of the intricate models and the details of various social service programs that are are standing up across New York. And, And I got to understand how social service organizations really struggle and how the individuals that, that are receiving those services struggle. And that's really what brought me to RIP is I, I really saw this, this issue of medical debt as one that was a mixture of both economic systems failings as well as the healthcare finance system failing. And those things coming together. And really, ultimately, it's the same people that are being impacted here. Allison, I don't think I knew or heard much about medical debt until the past couple of years. 
why is it that it has been more in the news lately? People, including myself, are more aware of it. And can you describe a bit about the scale of the problem? I mean, it, it, it's astounding. It is astounding. And, you know, I like to think that RIP medical debt had something to do with the fact that it's being talked about much more lately. I, you know, I know that the medical debt relief we've been doing, we've been around now for going on 10 years, not quite there yet. So that sort of lines up with the time frame. And I think the medical debt relief we've been doing is getting people's attention and really, and we're doing that intentionally, right? Like we want this issue to be elevated. It's, it is a pretty big problem. It's a $195 billion problem at least. That's based on credit information. So it's probably actually worse than that. A hundred million people or 41% of adults have a medical debt of some kind. And, you know, and I would say that there's also the, the burden of medical care costs is not even caught within those numbers. So if you think about people who are on payment plans that technically have the money, it's still a burden for them to be on that payment plan and paying that additional cost. I think that's something to pay attention to and that matters. Yeah, it's it's an enormous problem. It's one that I think we have seen and our practices, the practices we work with have seen as well firsthand. So how does RAP Medical Debt address this? What is the basic structure of how you guys resolve this and, and who who's the team? Oh, yeah. Well, our team is growing substantially. Yeah. So how does it work? Let me start there. So what we do is we go to a healthcare provider and or the secondary market, meaning an entity that has already bought the debt from a healthcare provider. We take donated dollars. So there's the team is, exists of you know, the fundraising team, people who talk to the donors and get people excited about it and make donations and shepherd those relationships. And then there's the debt purchasing team, right? The team that goes out and has conversations with the potential sources of debt that I was talking about. And then we've got a team of engineers who built this proprietary debt engine that helps put those two pieces together. We've also got a public policy arm and, and we've got an anthropologist who helps tell the stories. You know, of course, we've got all like the administration and finance and all of those kinds of parts of RIP as well, as well as this program management piece. So we've got a lot of different moving pieces. But ultimately, it's putting those two pieces together, the the donated dollars and the and the debt, finding the debt. And what we do is we go to the hospitals, we enter into a business associates agreement with them. They they give us their bad debt file, which is usually pretty large. Obviously, the larger the system, the more the larger the file is. We ingest that file into our system. We pair that with data that we purchase from FinThrive, which is an offshoot of TransUnion. And then we identify all of the people that are qualify for our program, which is 400% of poverty or below, or if the debt, and that's roughly $55,000 for an individual. And, and if the debt is 5% or more of the, per, uh, of the person's overall income. So that's how we identify who's eligible. And then we pair those donations. Well, then we price the debt and the debt is priced based on the market, which is very, very cheap, which is what makes our model amazing. $1 relieves $100 of medical debt. So, you know, $100 relieves $10,000 of medical debt, you know, and just keep doing the maths and intervals of that. And so that's why we've been able to relieve $8.5 billion of debt for 5.5 million people with this model. And then so once we've priced the debt, and it's based on age, how we price the debt. So the older the debt, the cheaper it is. And it's even the younger debt is relatively cheap compared to the face value. So what we do is we price the debt. We come up with one solid price for the entire portfolio. And then we enter into a, a purchase agreement with the hospital. We've literally wire them over money. And then we own the debt. And we start sending letters. And again, our debt engine comes into 
play here too, start sending letters in mass to all those individuals whose debt we just bought and as we are now relieving or abolishing and let them know that it's been, they've been free and clear. And then what happens is we try to create a feedback loop. Our, once we send those letters, we hope that people will come back to us and tell their stories about the medical debt. And that's where our anthropologist that I mentioned comes into play. She talks to them. She gets a sense of what it meant to have medical debt and what it meant to have it relieved. And then once she does that, she feeds that information to our public policy arm who takes that information and, you know, tries to feed it into the, the narrative more broadly and make sure policymakers are thinking about the impacts of medical debt and really puts, creates an impetus for change. So that's in a nutshell. <laughs> Our, our moving pieces and who we are and how we do this work. I was talking to a doctor from Scotland, somebody we actually had on the ACO show a little while back and medical debt came up and he, he barely knew what I was talking about. He didn't understand yep. how, how this could be a thing in our country. 195 billion is a sum almost too big to get the mind around. Can you bring it down to the level of, of some of the stories? Like how, how is this actually affecting people? So let me give you a woman in Tennessee that we helped. So we abolished eight, $8,000. She had a son and the first week of his life, he was sick. He was feverish and he had to be in intensive care. And so yeah, she had this very high bill relative to that she didn't expect. We abolished that debt for her and he was 19 when we abolished that debt. So that debt followed her around most of his life. And when we abolished it, she reached out to us because she was so excited and and just relieved by the fact that this debt was was removed. And so th that's an extreme example, but I like to use it because I think that there's this sense sometimes that I get that when you relieve debts, there, there are people have already forgotten about them. They're old and it doesn't have an impact. And a story like this demonstrates that that's absolutely not true. This woman was still weighed down after 19 years by a debt that she couldn't avoid. I mean, the healthcare system, thankfully, was there for her in her time of need. But should an $8,000 debt follow her and her son and burden them throughout the beginnings of their life? I don't think so. There's another story of a man in Utah who was a, a veteran. And he had, as a result of his service to the country, some nerve damage that he had to have an operation for. He did, did that surgery and he was covered technically in the VA, but he ended up, he did have VA coverage, but for whatever reason, it, it did that didn't cover this particular surgery. And he ended up in debt and ended up ruining his credit to the point where, and this is the part that we are like our anthropologist heard this story from him. When his son went to go to college, he needed a co-signer for the loan and his father wasn't able to do that co-signing. And that just broke his heart. You know, he can't send his son on, on the right path to the journey of his life because he has this, he, because he had leg pain as a result of serving the country and then coming back to the same country that ends up creating this medical debt for him. Does it also, in a way, add cost to the overall system? Because I would imagine that somebody who owes money to their doctor may not call their doctor when they get sick and then end up yet sicker and be cared for ultimately in a more expensive way. Is that something that happens? I mean, certainly people avoid going to the doctor because of medical debts that they have. There is no, there's plenty of research that demonstrates that people avoid going to the doctor. And that I think is one of the more heartbreaking elements of it. And yes, they end up going to get more expensive care at the end. 
But the other thing is some people end up dying or, or be having chronic conditions that never get under control because of the fact that they're avoiding care. I mean, we know that people sit in parking lots of ERs waiting for the pain to subside before they walk through those doors or they refuse to get in ambulances. I mean, we, we've heard these stories over and over. The other thing I always think of, like, people end up taking Ubers to the hospital because they don't want to get in an ambulance. I mean, these like, in, this is insanity. You're, you know, the person you mentioned in Scotland would not understand any of this because this is very uniquely American problem that we have. Yeah, it's it's uniquely American problem. And, and I, I really respect that we're finding creative solutions, but it does it does make you scratch your head sometimes as to why why we're having to do this all in the first place. We actually, I, I love these letters that are sent to patients because I think part of this too is the healthcare system is so opaque that sometimes it's hard for patients to know exactly what's happening behind the scenes. We actually, shortly after we announced our partnership working together, received an email from an Allidade staff member in Mississippi. And for those of you who are just coming to this fresh, our, our partnership with RIP Medical Debt helped relieve medical debt for more than 100,000 patients in Mississippi and Louisiana. And one of our Allidade staff members reached out to let us know. They said, I received a letter in the mail today about a debt I was unaware of from a previous employer, a local emergency room from almost 10 years ago. The debt itself was small, but at that time, I was a full-time student, graduating undergrad, working full-time in an ER, and would have had to make choices and decisions that could have had different outcomes. Just a small thank you for making a difference in the lives of Mississippians, whether or not they know about their medical debt. And that really hit home to not only hear that we were helping a lot of patients around Mississippi and Louisiana, but there were actually people in our own company who were juggling medical debt, who are trying to fix the healthcare system overall, and themselves are still carrying around this debt from the healthcare system from a while ago. What are some of the key drivers of this? If we try to dig into, before we get to some of the solutions, what's really driving medical debt? Is it just rates of uninsured? Is it the astronomical price increases? What What is really at the core of of this outstanding debt that so many Americans are, are carrying? Unfortunately, I think it's a built-in feature of our system. And that's just a hard, cold truth of it. Yes, we have fixed the insurance problem, actually, largely. 90 plus percent of people actually have insurance now thanks to the ACA or Obamacare, right? So that's great, but they're underinsured. And still there's a percentage of people that are uninsured, right? So that that's a, a reality that is is unfortunate. I think that there's also inconsistent, inconsistent and inadequate financial assistance policies at hospital systems. They are, uh, financial assistance policies are essentially charity care or free care for people that are poor or don't have Medicaid or don't qualify for Medicaid. There is sort of a gap between qualifies for Medicaid and, and the affordability scale. So that's, that's part of the problem. And I think hospitals, one of the things that we really want to see is hospitals take a harder look at their approaches to financial assistance policies and actually make sure that it's not just hospitals that have financial assistance policies. They're required nonprofit hospitals to have them. But I think it's important for other providers to think about having these policies in place as well. And that's just an overall misalignment between personal means and out-of-pocket expectations. I mean, the fact that people can have health insurance plans that have huge deductibles when they certainly don't have the means to pay those deductibles doesn't make any sense. And we know that going in. But at the same time, I understand why that's the case, because the premiums are so high that people can't afford the more robust insurance. So they're kind of locked in this really difficult situation. So, you know, people turn to blame them. Well, why didn't you have better insurance? Well, because the better insurance is way out of my league. And so I took the risk and took the, you know, I hope that I didn't get that sick. 
And, you know, the, I took I took the lower cost plan because I can't afford the other one without great sacrifice or at all. And then there's also, I think, just challenges in general in predicting the costs in advance. This idea that we should be shoppers or the, the sense that we're consumers of healthcare is just fundamentally flawed. It's not something you can expect people to do. And I think that we have to walk away from that. It's not working. And there's just varying costs between procedure costs and drugs. I hear and see people struggling to try to help people grapple with these costs. I mean, I don't think that you can actually figure out what the appropriate costs should be. There's too many variables. And frankly, built into the cost is the fact that the healthcare provider knows that there's a certain percentage of people that aren't going to pay, that they're going to have to subsidize. So the subsidies are built into the cost and they have to be. So, you know, there's there's this like debate about, you know, government funding versus whatever. Well, guess what? We're subsidizing it anyway because it's built into the price. And that's why the prices are outrageous. And so, you know, I think we have to be thinking fundamentally about those elements of it. And I just think it's just increasingly complicated system that's difficult for people to understand. And there there is a real lack of, I think, enactable, and this is important, enactable policy solutions. The the politics are not there for what probably needs to be done in some some bigger ways. And so we try to be more pragmatic and realistic about what can be done. And and overall, I do not think, you know, a lot of the narrative in the media is about these like the hospitals are evil. No, the insurance companies are evil. No, the prescription drug companies are evil. Honestly, at the end of the day, the system is set has incentives set up for them to act exactly as they are acting. Period. Allison, we are proud at Allidade to know that we, working with you, retired $95 million of medical debt for over 110,000 patients in Louisiana and Mississippi. When I heard our CEO, Farzad Mostashari, speaking about this, I thought, oh, he just gave away $95 million? We're, we're not doing that well. But he didn't. So how does that work that you retire so much debt without having to, to pay that much money? How we're able to do that is because there's a market for debt. At the end of the day, think of it like this. The, the hospital or provider, you know, again, they have this expectation that a certain amount of people aren't going to pay. And, and, you know, they do try to collect on it. And th different providers have different philosophies about how intensely they're going to go about that work. If they're going to use an outside entity, you know, if they're going to go after them for years or just twice or whatever it is. But so they have, but at the end of the day, they write it off to bad debt. So they put it in the bad debt and they sort of just sits on their books or doesn't really sit on their books, right? It's like written off. So we're, that's the debt pool that we're looking at, that we're trying, and that's, that's the same debt pool that an entrepreneurial debt buyer will come to the hospital and say, hey, you've got this thing. I see it as an asset. It's on your books. You know, it's, it's, it, you're saying it's worth nothing, but I'll give you couple bucks for it, right? Like I'll give you something for it, but they have to make sure that what they're giving to them is relatively low. But again, for the hospital, it's worth zero. So whatever they give them is better than zero. And so they give them some price and then, you know, they take a look at the file. They, they give them some price for the entire file. And then they start working the file, which means they start going to those people because now this entrepreneurial person or entity owns the debt and they go to the people and say, Hey, Guess what? The hospital sold your debt to me, so now you've got to pay me. And if you don't, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the effort because I'm not providing healthcare services. You know, my job is just to make this return on my investment that I just made, and so I will put the time and effort in to make sure that you pay me back. And that means taking you to court. It could be garnishing your wages, just continuing to harass you, call your friends and family, whatever it takes. And that's what 
how that system works ultimately. And we, as a nonprofit, take advantage of that pricing. So we also go to the hospitals, except and we mimic that same, here's a couple bucks for this big file, except when we get the debt, we say, hey, we bought your debt and you're free and clear of it because donated dollars supported this, like the donation that your company made to us. That is altogether dystopian that an underinsured, full-time employed person's the medical debt they acquired from their sick child becomes an asset. Correct. It's the United States of America. That's how it works. I mean, everything's sort of a commodity, right? Yeah, we've we've got a lot of work to do. Looking ahead a little bit, I, I know one of the things that Allidade and RIP Medical Debt were particularly interested in and have been exploring in different ways is the types of medical debt or the locations of that debt and how to reach out to new places to to resolve that debt. Specifically, I'm thinking, as you talked about the model, you talked about it being relatively straightforward to purchase from large hospitals and health systems because they have these large aggregated lists of, of the debt and, and are experienced and able to, to package that and sell it. But there's also another universe of debt out there among independent practices and practices that are not quite tied into the large systems. How are you all thinking about tackling that problem? And are there other places that you're looking at for the future in innovative ways to, to get at more, even more of the debt held by Americans out there? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, we have honestly our hands full with even the hospital systems alone. We only started buying debt directly from hospitals less than three years ago, like two years ago. I think this is our beginning of our third year, really. So, I mean, let we have plenty of work to do and plenty of debt to acquire through the hospital systems. Uh, on top of that, we, of course, are interested also in physician debt because also there t- people tend to go more frequently to the physician than they do and get debt there than they do to to the hospitals. Although the debts, I think, tend to be larger in hospital systems, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily less burdensome depending on your income level. So we are very much interested in figuring out how we might get debt from other sources um, such as, as you know, physician-based practices, primary care. It is a little bit of an issue because it's a resources issue, essentially. I mean, it's like, who has the more sophisticated uh, technology systems that, are, that need to interact with ours and be able to put those files together to share them, especially in a HIPAA-compliant, you know, secure way, which is really important. And we've put a lot of effort into ensuring that our systems are, you know, compliant and, and, and really as tight as possible. So that's really, I think, what the, the issue is. We have to figure out a way to make sure that we can get those files that doesn't create too much of a headache for those nurses and also for us. So we're really looking to work actually in collaboration with all of you in trying to figure out some of those details and, and also figure out whether or not you can help answer those questions because we're very, very interested in that debt. If people are listening and they want to get involved and they want to help, well, what should somebody do? Well, you can help on two fronts, the source of the debt, of course, and you can reach out to us and there's actually a provider section on our website. So it's ripmedicaldebt.org. And there's a section that's specifically for providers where you can just email us and we'll follow up and we'll set up a meeting and, you know, take the next steps. And then if you want to obviously donate to RIP, there's a section there that's very clear on our website as well. 
you can donate, you know, to general medical debt relief, to unrestricted or to some specific like state campaigns that are going on as well. And then, you know, I think people, if they're more interested in the policy aspect of things, we do have a policy newsletter that people can sign up for and keep abreast of the medical debt issue. And, and in general, you know, that I think helps move this issue beyond the medical debt relief, which I think we very much need to get beyond. I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with the idea that while I love what I do, I don't know why I should or need to be doing it. Allison Sesso, CEO of RIP Medical Debt. Thank you for coming on the show and keep up the good fight. This is really important work. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was produced by Leanne Horst, Alana Coogan, and Stuart Taylor. You can find more episodes of The ACO Show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and join us next time.